HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is April 2020. We're in the middle of the COVID quarantine, and we've got a special show. It had originally been planned uh, on Heritage Radio Network to have Lars Garschel in from Norway to talk about his new book, and John Lapolia of Bitter and Esters had, had set up a whole week of activities in and around New York City. Unfortunately, the, that trip and events have been canceled, but we got Lars on the phone anyway. So we're going to go around the room and talk about uh, the historical brewing technique, the new book by Lars, and in particular, the Kvikis, which is what everyone has been talking about. So first, let's go around the room. Lars, please introduce yourself. I'm Lars Marius Gorsund from um, Norway. Started out as a beer blogger and general craft beer enthusiast. And then I discovered this alternate universe of uh, farmhouse brewing and got completely sucked in and uh, kind of almost left the world of craft beer behind now that's great and john hey jimmy uh what do you want to know about me i'm the owner of uh bitter and esther's homebrew supply shop along with my uh, business partner douglas been uh open for about nine years now and yeah we were uh, working with lars to have him in new york city to come and uh, visit a whole bunch of places and talk about his new book and um, just find out more about the uh, farmhouse brewing in Norway, which we'll do today. I'm excited. That's great. And Pete? Hey, guys. Pete Langell Fushimi from Kings County Brewers Collective in Bushwick, Brooklyn, New York. Um, we have a brewery that's been, a production brewery that's been open for almost four years now, and we've been brewing with Kvike for a bit over a year now and very interested in the subject. Looking forward to this talk. That's great. Well, everyone, thanks for joining me. And uh, it was Pete, You about a year and a half ago, you came on, you had been traveling in Scandinavia, and you were the first one on our show to talk about the Kvikis. So it's great that it's come full circle and the book's out. So we're going to start with Lars. Lars, you know, your book is Historical Brewing Techniques. You talked about so many different farmhouse, you know, brewing techniques and traditions from stone beer to to raw ales. Um, I'm fascinated and I can't wait to get the book. 
So just tell us about your background, how you got started. I know that you were on Rate Beer. You said you had reviewed over 7,000 beers. So you're obviously a, a beer geek. How did, how did you discover the traditional Norwegian farmhouse beers? Uh, it's kind of a weird story in the sense that it, it didn't really start in Norway. Um, so like you said, I, I did the Rate Beer thing and I, um, I spent a lot of time trying out beers in different places. And then my wife gave me this book uh, about a guy who wanted to create uh, a special Nordic type of beer. He didn't. He wanted people to be able to taste that the beer was Nordic. And he um, he went to Lithuania and brewed with this farmer who grew his own malt, uh, you know, his own grain. He malted it himself. He had his own yeast in the well. And I thought, well, Lithuania sounds like an interesting place. So I went there and, you know, just went to bars and tried beers and was was just floored by the way that they tasted. Because at that point, I knew enough about beer to tell that this isn't normal. Uh, But but I I couldn't find out why are they so strange? What's going on? So it was basically in trying to figure that out that I discovered that, oh, they're farmhouse beers. They're made by people who don't know about modern brewing at all. And they're doing completely unknown stuff. And then, oh, we have that in Norway too. And that was kind of how I got into it. I've seen some photos of, of men sitting around a big pot of water waiting for it to boil. Um, what are some of the the traditions that are kept alive that we don't use in modern brewing? There's many ways to answer that because... Um, you know, British uh, uh, beer culture is people going to pubs and drinking uh, flat, warm beer, right? And we have we have something similar in that, uh, that it's different. What kind of beer you brew, how you brew it, why you brew it, the 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 context that you drink it in. So it's like it's a complete universe of all of these, those things. But in technical terms. Uh, some of the things that stand out are people still making their own malts, uh, using juniper branches as an ingredient, uh, not boiling the wort, uh, people who have this quake yeast that they inherited from their ancestors and have kept going, stuff like that, mainly. That's great. Well, now let's go to Pete. So, Pete, at KCBC, uh, you guys have been using a, a form of quake yeast for a long time. Tell us how you guys discovered it at KCBC and how you've been working it into your production. Yeah, we're using Sigmund's Vaskvike and uh, it originally came on board with a collab with Greenpoint Beer and Ale with the brewer Trevor, who now works for us. Um, he started experimenting with that Greenpoint and we I went over there and tried a bunch of his beers. He brewed several styles, including a stout and it was amazing. <laughs> It worked very well across all these different styles. It's a pretty versatile yeast. So we came, uh, got together, and did a uh, all-dry hop IPA with Kvike for the first brew. And ever since then, we transitioned it in. And, and we used to brew with Dry English, another great yeast, a workhorse. But <clears throat> we found that Kvike is quite versatile, like I said, and f- and very fast. It, it actually only shaved a day or two off of our schedule, but a day or two you know, with, with, we have nine fermenters over the course of a year, that saves a significant amount of time and money. So we've been brewing everything with, we do our fruited sours, we do IPAs, 
we've we we don't do all of our stouts, but we do some stouts. Um, we do even clean styles, kind of like a if we did a blonde ale or a Kolsch, we might even try the Kvike. We're very happy with the Strave. So I read that Kvike is a robust yeast influencing modern brewing. But to many people, do they think of Kvike? I know it's a yeast, but do they think of it in particularly as a style, or it is how is it being? Uh, represented outside of KCBC. John, do you want to weigh in on that one? Uh, as far as breweries are concerned, um, I wouldn't be able to tell you, uh, but I could tell you that uh, the home brewers are thrilled with the with just the fact that it can fer ferment warm. So it is, it's good for any style. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was a style of beer. Kvike actually is one of the words for yeast. Uh, as far as I know. So it's really just uh, a different type of yeast that can work in different ways and create uh, neutral flavors, uh, some fruit flavors. Uh, it's. I was told by Omega Yeast that you would use it in any beer that would use an English strain. But uh, the trick is to pitch warm, from what I understand, around 95. I made I made a barley wine for a festival we had, a Kvike festival, uh, in three weeks, a beer that should have taken about six months to a year, um, because this yeast just chewed right through all the sugars and uh, maturized really quick. So any style that would take an English strain, and there is, there is also a, a lager strain that's available out there that also will ferment very quick. Um, I, I heard of it first from a customer who told me that there was this yeast that could ferment really warm and he uses it during the summer and I, I, I didn't believe him being the skeptic that I am I was like nah it doesn't exist and then he brought me a beer and I was blown away by the fact that he actually was able to make this not just quick but hot uh, we used to tell people during the summer at my homebrew shop uh, to make saisons uh, saisons are known to be able to ferment warm so everybody would make saison styles and that is a style but with the Gavike it opens up all all different styles uh, pretty much you know 80% of the styles that of beer that are made can be made with this yeast so it's a it, we sell the hell out of it during the summer it's fantastic that's great so Lars uh, on your journey when did you discover these traditional yeasts and how did other people start learning about them uh, for me it was when I when I came back from Lithuania I, I um... Thought, okay, why don't we look at this thing that we have in Norway? And that I discovered pretty quickly that there were stories about these people who had this yeast that they called Quake and, and they said it was very old. And that was basically all that we were able to find out. Um so we set out on a on a trip actually, a week long trip to uh, to visit the brewers. And this was in uh, May twenty fourteen. So we went to Voss in Western Norway and brewed the beer together with uh, Sigmund Jarnes, um, the guy that this, this uh, Voss Quake comes from. And we were of course also blown away by this uh, uh, the, the, the fermentation temperature, but he didn't he didn't say anything. So he we went through the whole brew and then um, when he was about to pitch the yeast, we noticed that he had wrapped insulation around his fermenter which is like the opposite of what you normally want. So we were like, what temperature do you ferment at? And he says, 39 centigrade. So that's like 105 Fahrenheit, I think. And I still remember just looking at it. Like, what What did you say? And I, and he says, kind of apologetically, well, 
my brother has measured uh, the temperature during fermentation to 42, as, as though that would make it better. Um, maybe I lost the plot now. Where was I going with this? No, no, that it, it's it's great because I want I want to get you to talk about other things, but um, I just want to go back to John. So, John, uh, t tell us more about you know the the, the Kvikis, how it's being you know received in the homebrew community. Uh, for some brewers, it's all they use now, uh, which is crazy. We can we can only carry three strains: uh, the Voss, the Hornendal, and what's called Hothead from omega yeast those are the only ones that we carry but they each have their own uh their own flavor profile they're all ferment very hot but they're each one will create a different beer so the the home brewers i think the main thing that they like about it is that the idea of temperature control uh, especially for ales uh is kind of out the window uh, because you pitch hot so the the neat thing about that is that you don't even have to cool down as much as you used to. That that's a big pain, especially in the homebrew community, is to get something down to sixty-five Fahrenheit. That's that's a difficult thing, especially during the summer. But now in the hot weather, get it down to about ninety-five. You pitch, you put it anywhere, because uh, you don't. At least we don't tell them that they need to keep it at ninety-five, although it'll, it will work faster. But once you pitch at ninety-five and then let it kind of sit for three days, it attenuates almost instantly. It's kind of crazy. Um, and then they get really good quality beer and they get it not just faster, but also they don't have to worry about that whole idea of uh, worrying about off flavors from warm fermentation. Um, it is, there are different things that you can do. Uh, one of the things Lars, uh, from what I hear is when you pitch a yeast, you should scream. Yeah. And uh, I make sure everybody screams. Uh, that's a tradition from actually many parts of Northern Europe, yeah. Uh, it's still alive in some places uh, where people will still scream when they pitch the yeast. And uh, historically the reason was that they thought there were supernatural creatures that would uh, destroy or steal the beer and you needed to frighten them away. Well, I'll tell you, the, the traditions in Norway, I mean, it goes back to, to, to tell us like going way back, you know, the, I read about the stone beer and and that people had wooden vessels so they couldn't put them on a fire let's go way back into norway and and northern brewing mars yeah so the the beginning of that is quite seriously far back in time uh it's so far back that we don't know when it was um so uh, the growing of grain came to Norway roughly 4,000 before Christ. And it's possible that, people, uh, that the knowledge of brewing came together with the knowledge of how to, how to grow the grain. We can't tell. Like, from the moment that we get some insight into what people were doing, they, beer was already an established part of all of their traditions. So you know, if you want to talk about old traditions, something that's... Something that's older than beer brewing would be stuff like fishing and reindeer herding, I guess. I, I could carry on and talk about the stone beer. I, I want you to talk a little more about the stone beer. Okay, I'll do that then. So, uh, way back in, uh, in older times, people did have uh, metal kettles and so on from the Bronze Age, but... The trouble was that uh, mining was not exactly efficient at this time, so anything made of metal was really, really expensive. 
We know that from in the Middle Ages, you would have to pay more than two cows for a, for a brewing kettle, which meant that uh, for most people, this was this was riches that they could never aspire to own, basically. So, for someone who wants to brew, like people, <laughs> people have this idea that the point of stone beer is to boil the wort. But if you think about uh, the problem of brewing for someone like this, the most important problem is they not they can't mash, right? So this is actually what they did. You would take. Um, uh, a wooden vessel, you put in uh, water, juniper branches, and, and the malt, and then you dump uh, hot stones in there to, to heat it up, basically, get it up to mash temperature. And, of course, actually boiling the wort for an hour with hot stones is, is not easy, and that's probably why very few farmhouse brewers have been boiling their wort at all. So that's where the raw ale comes from as well. So what what makes it raw ale? So it's you you put it. They would put the hot stones in to to make the mash. Yeah. And then is it just an open ferment? Uh, the next step or? Uh, there were people uh, who used to do that, and until like a few decades ago, that you would uh, you would heat the mash, let it cool, pitch the yeast, and then run off the finished beer after uh, you fermented, but. Uh, the classic kind of raw ale brewing as it developed out of medieval brewing is uh, you just pour hot water on the malt, you run off the wort, you cool it, and then you pitch the yeast. So you just skip the boil. Yeah. Hey, let, let's get uh, John in there. John, any questions about some of these traditional ales? Uh, yeah. Was, was Were hops ever used, Lars? Yeah. Or was it always just juniper and malt? I, I think... Uh, from my statistics, something like ninety-five percent of brewers across Northern Europe used hops. So, but there were there were there were people who didn't use them. Um, but uh, what they figured out is, you know, you have one hundred and fifty liters of wort, and you don't need to boil all of that to boil your hops. You can take a little, uh, maybe a stone vessel or something, boil the hops in that, and then just uh, pour hop tea, as they call it, into the fermenter. Yeah. Okay. That 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 sounds quicker. <laughs> yeah. It's it's also it's also has uh, benefits because these people didn't have, you know, they didn't buy the hops, so they had no idea what the alpha acid was. That would depend on the uh, on the weather that summer. So in many cases, they would add a little hop tea uh, before they started fermenting, and then they might add it to taste afterwards. Well, I asked just because uh, you know historically hops are preservative. And with something being not even boiled uh, in a raw ale, I wondered how long it could actually uh, be drinkable um, uh, without a hop addition. I've had the raw ale that was two years old, and it was perfectly fine. Had it at one year, it's perfectly fine. So you have to remember that uh, even though you don't boil, uh, you have kept the mash at something like uh, 70 centigrade for an hour, right? And these pe these guys usually go longer than an hour. So it's through and through pasteurized. That makes sense. And it's it, it ferments to alcohol too. So Yeah, the the yeast will also protect it and and the hops will also protect it. Yes. Lars, do you think the uh the juniper might have had a, a preservative effect as well or is that mostly laddering aid? 
or well, flavor? Uh, <laughs> that's a fun question because people from Norway into Finland into central Russia, they all talk about juniper and say, you know, with confidence that it's a disinfectant uh, or antibacterial. Uh, but it's never been tested scientifically. So does it have an effect? I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's a bittering agent, maybe it's a laddering agent, and it's preservative, maybe it's multi Definitely two of those, and maybe the third. Um, I have a, another question, Lars. Um, I, I recently had some of the farmhouse beers from, beers from uh, Lithuania, and they were flat. They weren't carbonated. Uh, is that uh, the, these farmhouse ales, are they conditioned at all? Are they uh, carbonated at all, or are they usually uh, uh, flat or slightly carbonated uh the lithuanian commercial ones tend to have kind of carbonation but a little low carbonation but that's special for the for the commercial varieties they i think they had to do that to be able to sell them but uh the the, the farmhouse ale that's is brewed today and as it was historically is like english cask ale uh, so it's naturally carbonated while it's being served but it's not under pressure and of course you know if you don't measure the sugar content uh and you don't have a whole lot of uh, vessels that can uh, can hold pressure. You're never going to make something that's carbonated that way. And these people never drank anything that was carbonated anyway. So they weren't used to that flavor. Uh, Lars, so I, I know that you um, there's a movement to, to get the traditional farmhouse beers of Norway. The breweries turned into like some kind of UNESCO you know, world historical site. Um, how would I drink the beer in the farmhouse? If I'm in the farmhouse, how is the beer served? And that that goes along with what John was saying. Yeah. So uh, now we now I assume we're going back a little bit in time, right? Like a hundred years. So then, the, uh, they would go down in the cellar. They would pour from the you know the wooden barrel in the cellar into something that looks like a garden watering can. And they would uh, come up in the living room and pour it uh, in a bowl, a wooden bowl that's maybe one, two liters. Um, some places these would have horse head handles. They really look quite impressive. And then th you would do a toast. So then everyone present would get the same bowl and they would drink from it. And then usually there would also be uh, some ritual things that you were supposed to say, you know, politeness phrases. Wow, but that that means also that the beer was kept cold. It was in the north, so it probably that's another reason why it may have lasted a long time. Yeah, yeah. In in uh, in an earth cellar in Norway, it never really gets very warm. Like maybe up to ten degrees, but but no no higher than that. Yeah, and I know you're curious, uh, and maybe for Pete and John, maybe for Pete, um, Lars was curious about just how Americans. Are responding to the the Kvikis. Like the reason I asked, is it seen as a style? Because it sounds great and it sounds kind of trendy to me. Um, do, do you guys use that in your marketing at KCBC now? No, I wouldn't say we're we're promoting it, but um, and and we don't really consider it a style. It's just another yeast in our toolbox. But like I said earlier, it's one that has a broad range of uses and. Uh, and when we use it for different styles, we we mostly we're temperating, we're we're adjusting the temperature, and so if we wanted something that's estuary, we're gonna push it a little higher. We don't even go high compared to most people. We we knock out at seventy five Fahrenheit, which is pretty low, so we can oxygenate, and then we let it ramp up to eighty five, 
and 85 is the bottom end of the temp range. And we're trying to squeeze some esters out of it, but we don't want the earthy ester that this one's reputed to, to produce. So we don't want it to go too high. And if we're doing a fruited sour, we keep it really low. And if we're doing a stout, we keep it low because we don't want the esters and we want to re-ferment the fruit. So we're trying to we're trying to actually slow down this fermentation so that we can get the, the malt sugars fermented. And then we're going to add a bunch of simple sugars and we want the yeast still in suspension, still active. We're still seeing issues with that because once this yeast switched over to simple sugars, it no longer wants to ferment the, the more complex malt sugars. And so we're getting a higher residual gravity on those. But yeah, we're, we're, we're using it as a regular yeast. We're, we don't see it as a style, but we see it as a really good yeast for a variety of styles. And then John, so you, uh, you said that Omega is, is a source of the yeast. Tell us about the, that business of yeast manufacturers and, and how that works for home brewers. Well, they're laboratories and you know they, they supply product to us just like any other distributor or any other vendor. Uh, one thing about Omega, because of this whole COVID-19 thing, they shut down, uh, which was really scary <laughs> because we loved them and we didn't want to see them go out of business. But luckily, they, they uh, reopened recently. Um, but they, you know, they're a, a yeast lab, and so they have tons of different yeasts. They have yeast from all over the world and all different strains, and they're good because they do a lot of... Um, hybridization of yeast so they have things that you can't get anywhere else but they do carry these three Kvike strains uh, and I and I would you know we still sell more of the London Ale 3 their uh, British 5 than anything because uh, that's that's that Northeast IPA strain but we're, we're turning more and more people on to the Kvike because it takes care of so many problems that we that we teach to homebrewers, you know, mainly the the idea of uh, temperature control. That's the one thing that really scares people away, especially in a New York City apartment. I'm sitting in my apartment right now in April, and it's about 95 degrees in here. It's ridiculous. It's just the way it is in New York when you live on the top floor. Um, I do have a question for Lars. Uh, One thing that I did try that I, I had read about, not sure where, but was to pitch to uh, seriously under pitch these Kvike strains uh, at a high temperature. It's supposed to be the way to increase esters and increase flavor, but I had uh, I had bad results with that. I had I got a lot of that vinyl flavor that that kind of under pitched off flavor. Can you uh, talk about that at all? Sure. Um, the the traditional brewers tend to t- under pitch quite a lot. Some of them really take it to an extreme and and put in like a couple of dried flakes for 150 liters um these um it's kind of complicated to talk about people's experience and and related to to what i know of the original cultures because um (laughs) they it's not just that the, the individual quakes differ from each other it's also that each quake contains more strains than we know how to count, really. So then, <laughs> this family has like 40 cultures and there's at least 50 strains in each of them. Uh, so when, when you're, you know, you are you want me to talk about, I don't know which quake and one of the 50 strains in there and I don't know which, it gets really complicated. But um, as, a, as a general rule, the, the, the Voss and the Horn in the quakes, um, they do tend to give uh, more esters when you underpitch them, 
Um, but then they also want uh, a lot of nutrient and they want a good bit of oxygen to make that work. Yeah, that that was something I realized that they either work better with uh, nutrient or with higher gravity beers, which will have more nutrient just as a rule uh, with the higher gravity warts. Uh, they tend to come out better. I've noticed it with that. Hey guys, let, let's we're going to take a break in a minute. I'd like to ask each one of you uh, what you're drinking. Uh, Pete, what is a current beer that KCB sees brewing with a Kvike yeast? Well, really, most all of our ales currently. Um, what I'm drinking right now is Robot Fish Simcoe, which is a single hop, single malt series. Um, this one, we've been making it all along, and we've used a few different yeasts, but it's been all Kvike for over a year now. This guy's uh it's all Simcoe malt and Thomas, or sorry, it's all Thomas Fawcett optic malt and Simcoe hops and 6.6 ABV. Okay, and Lars, you mentioned a Norwegian uh, raw ale. What, what was that beer, the Byglen? Yeah, it's from uh, Big Glum and Brigidi. Um They made a series that they call For the Love of Quake, and then they do... The original recipe for the uh, from the brewer that that yeast comes from, and this is the one that's called the Film Garden. So it's a nine percent uh, royal with with juniper branches. And that's is that only available in Norway, or is that shipped other places? For some weird reason, it's not shipped other places. That's something that really should change, I think. And and John, are you drinking anything with Kvike in it? Not with Kvike. No, I'm I'm drinking a beer from uh, San Jose, California. A friend of mine's brewery called um, Santa Clara Brew uh, Santa Clara Valley Brewing Company. It's a beer called Electric Tower. I had I, it's a great IPA. I just didn't have any other beer, <laughs> so I usually don't drink beer this early. That's great. And I, I'm drinking the Industrial Arts uh, Spring Landscape, which I seem to have a lot of right now. Um, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute. And we'll be right back on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency Tart Cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. In these times of, of COVID and, uh, you know, being housebound, uh, please don't forget to support heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Uh, we're there for you. There's, there's many shows going on right now supporting chefs, restaurants, and, and other themes that we love like beer. Okay, we're back here with Lars. Uh, his new book is out, Historical Brewing Techniques. And we've been waiting for months to talk to him about Kvike and traditional beers. So welcome back, everyone. Um, Lars, my, my question is, you, you did so much research on historical beers. Um, how did you do the research? I mean, you, you have numbers of, of places where, where yeast and other things were, were, were documented. I mean, how did you do that research? And, and just tell us some of the process that went into it. So uh, I guess we, there's two main ways that I did it. So one is to, 
to find the brewers to really go there and and brew with them because uh, there's a lot of written documentation but you can't you can't understand a beer in a style that's you know utterly unfamiliar to you just by reading about it so you have to go there you have to see what they do and, and take the measurements that they don't take and then taste the result and try and understand how they think and, and what they're trying to do so i did that in um yeah a number of different countries and then um it so happens that there's uh, something called ethnographic institutes in Northern Europe that um, documented all aspects of, of countryside life by sending out questionnaires. So there is, from 1953, there is a Norwegian questionnaire on farmhouse brewing with 103 uh, questions in it. So they got 180 answers from all over Norway, 1,200 pages, all of it. Uh, and that gives really amazing insight into the detail and the variation and all of that stuff. And then I added other, you know, book descriptions and stuff that I found on top of that. Okay, that that was great. And, and Pete, um, Pete, um, you know, you tra- I know you traveled in Scandinavia about a year and a half ago. Um, was there anything that, that stood out for you, like the use of yeast rings or anything about how some of the old brewers preserve their yeast? Well, when I was over there, I was brewing, well, with um, guys that wanted to make Northeast LIPA mostly. So we didn't we didn't get into any traditional techniques. I did go out in Norway to some bars, and I searched out and found some of the, the Christmas ales, some of the, the raw ales, and some of the traditional beers. Um, I tried them, and they were very different and very interesting, but we didn't get into brewing them. But when I first heard about Kavaik, what I did here was A, super high temperature, no fusel alcohols, clean fermentations with some esters, and B, its stuff is extremely robust. People would dry it out, cut it into like kind of discs and put it on a chain and store it for months, maybe even years. So very robust strain. Those were the two things that I originally heard. And then I found some brewers that were actually using it in the States and we gave it a go. Yeah. And, and Lars, tell us about this tradition of yeast rings and, and how the farmhouse brewers preserved their yeasts. Yeah, so um, people preserved the yeast in a huge number of different ways. So they did absolutely everything from just keeping it in a jar or drying it on a cloth or drying it on branches. or And then some people made what's called a yeast log, which can be, you know, just a, a section of the trunk of a tree or you can you can carve it into really elaborate shapes that have a lot of, uh, you know, little holes to keep the yeast in. Uh, but I guess the most iconic way is this um, yeast ring, as it's called, which is you you make like 70 or 80 little wooden links and then you chain them together so that it looks, I don't know, it looks like a cross between a collar and a dog's spine or something like that. It's it's really uh, it's really quite an interesting object. And the point of that is that you get a lot of surface in, not in uh, a quite small space, so it's very efficient at picking up yeast. So then you drag this through the yeast slurry, you hang it up, it will dry. And then when you want to use it, you take some of the first water you louter and you drop this thing in and an hour later it's fermenting. That's great. Hey, John, uh, tell us about some of the things you had planned for Lars's visit originally. 
Because you, you had some very cool events planned. Yeah, I'm, I'm known for just stuffing things pretty tight uh, when someone comes to visit. Um, the first thing was we were going to go to the Bruminaries meeting, which is tonight. Uh, they're doing a... Uh, Bruminaries is a homebrew club in Brooklyn. They're doing a, a Zoom meeting tonight. But we were going to go... Their meeting was going to be at 18th Ward uh, over in Bushwick. And Lars is going to give his talk. He has this uh, really great... Uh, talk on, on his book and on Norwegian and farmhouse brewing. And then where was I going to take him? I was going to get him on your show. I was going to get him on Steal This Beer. I was taking him to Google. Google has a homebrew club. Uh, we were going to go to that. We were going to go over to Long Island. Uh, there was a meadery that uses Kavaik out in Long Island. Um, and so he was... Uh, John, going... which, one, which one is that? You know, I don't remember right now. Is it Beacon right Meadery? Beacon? I honestly don't remember. It's right by. It's in the middle of Long Island. Yeah, I. I I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. Do you remember which one it was, Lars? Yeah, Meadworks. Meadworks. Okay. Uh, that that was uh, An- uh, Andrew uh, was running that. Um, and then we were going to go to my store actually on Saturday. That was the, the uh, one of the last stops was to go. To the store, I can't. I don't have the, the itinerary in front of me, but we did have a whole thing set up for him. Uh, we were really looking forward to it, but you know, I knew, I knew pretty soon that it wasn't going to happen. Well, John, we always love what you do at Bitter and Esters, and um, thanks so much for help putting the show together. Um, Pete, Pete, you sent in some interesting comments, and I'm just going to read it and let you take it from there. Um, I know that you guys are using the Sigmund Voskvike at KCBC. Um, you said you haven't really, you've only done limited research into Kvike, but what are the things that you have to consider when you're using a yeast? You mentioned it, is it, it's a very robust yeast, but what about it? How robust is it genetically? Yeah, well, currently, like John mentioned earlier, we got this strain from Omega and we were re, re-pitching every 10 generations. And they shut down. They're back up again now, but um, we're still uh, we're limping through this thing. You know, our all of our accounts pretty much are down. Our tasting rooms down, so we're looking to cut some costs. And we were we were repitching every ten generations, and I know people go a lot further. And uh, this yeast appears to be pretty robust, maybe genetically as well. And so we're gonna push it a little bit and see how well it does past gen- ten generations. We're at ten generations now. And so we're going to see if it starts to drift. Because with most yeast strains, uh, you may have heard of house character with a yeast. And that's when you keep one, you keep repitching it, reusing the same yeast over time. It starts to drift genetically and it becomes kind of a different strain. Uh, whereas if you want to keep something consistent, you go back to what's called a bank. And Omega is an example of a bank where they have it stored. And they go back to this master culture and they keep reculturing that and propagating it and they send you the same yeast. But if you keep using this yeast over and over again, it's going to start changing genetically and it'll have different characteristics. We're not necessarily looking for that. So we weren't, we're hoping that with this Kvike, it'll be pretty robust and it won't drift and we'll have the same yeast that we've had before. So, um, so, Pete, and so the modern times, you know, like a uh, yeast bank like Omega... What conditions do they have to keep that master yeast in? Oh, it's easy. They can do minus 80 degrees centigrade. They do what's called a glycerol stock. 
and it'll it'll stay in there like almost indefinitely. Um, they can, they can store it at at um, refrigerator temperatures, uh, four degrees C, and that'll last. I think I think they go six months, maybe a year with that. But if they want to keep it long term, they just grow up a big batch. They aliquot it out into smaller uh, vessels to keep, and they add some glycerin, and they can put it in minus eighty degrees centigrade. It'll stay basically forever. So they can just keep going back to that. Wow, that's fascinating. And, so going and replenishing going back to Lars. So you know that that's quite different than the traditional brewing you, you, you've helped shine the light on. Um, I want to hear more about how people kept their yeast going. You know, it, 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 it's, you, so you found different versions of the yeast in, in different parts of Norway? Yeah, that's right. And um, so even in like a, a small village community, there's typically uh, a number of brewers that each keep their own culture going. Uh, and typically the people in the same village, usually the, there's kind of a, <laughs> a shared character to all of the cultures from a single village. Although there are exceptions when, you know, people 50 meters apart have totally different flavors. Um, this this uh, yeast that comes from Sigmund, for example, um, he got that culture in uh, the mid-1980s from his uncle. Now, he's been repitching it since. And, of course, his uncle had been repitching it since forever before that. And even before then, you know, it's it's been repitched, yeah, forever. And uh, we did the comparison between his yeast and one from a neighbor a few kilometers away in another valley, Uh and they, they, the, the yeast lab said that we can see that these two are related. They, maybe they were the same yeast a few decades ago, but you know what a few decades means is not clear. It could be 30 years, it could be 120, it could be more, nobody knows. Uh, but it does seem that these, and this is not strains, right? This is cultures, a mix of many strains, uh, that they don't drift very much, but uh, the brewers themselves do some work to keep this in check so when you when you harvest from one brew you have yeast enough for, for quite a few brews uh 10 maybe more so uh what you can do is you you uh, you use more of the ones that you like and less of the ones that you don't like and this kind of guides the uh evolution of the yeast if you like and then of course if it all goes bad you just throw it away and you go to some neighbor and say i need some yeast well you know we've been having a yeast crisis in new york city for for bakers because suddenly everyone's quarantined and everyone's baking at home and in most of the supermarkets the 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 retail home yeast has been sold out, um, so it's interesting to think that in the farmhouse tradition, people t- took care of each other. Um, I saw some interesting things besides the ying yeast, the, the 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 ring yeast in your book. There's also some uh, people kept yeast on cloths and other things. I mean, how how can you? How easy is is it to preserve yeast like that? Well, uh, in one way, it's it's about as easy as it could be. You just you dip the cloth in the in the slurry and you hang it up and it grows and you keep it somewhere you know somewhere dry and safe. Um, but in reality, it's a little bit more involved because if you try it yourself, you discover that it's uh, you need to actually stay quite close to what they do. 
So if you have a, for example, if you have a long ferment and you leave the yeast for long, uh, so you basically need to do it the same way that they did, um, in the sense that, for example, if you if you have a very long ferment and you you know you wait two weeks before you harvest the yeast, then a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily want to harvest will have grown in that culture, whereas these guys will harvest after two or three days. So there's tricks like that and knowing whether you should crop from the top or the bottom and probably some things that we haven't quite learned from them yet that are the tricks that you need. But uh, we approach all of this very scientifically and we want all these technical explanations and, and the numbers and so on. But the reality is that if you just went to Sigmund Jarnes, you saw what he did and you just did exactly the same thing, it would work. Yeah. And Lars, you know, another thing from your book, I've, I've heard people say that one reason these traditions have, have lasted in the places that you research, like Lithuania and parts of Norway, is that they're either remote or they're poor. Um, how do you see the, this, these beer cultures versus our more modern era of commercial brewing since like the 19th century? Right. Yeah, there's been a there's been a huge die off where people switch to buying things instead of making them themselves. Uh, you know, this this yeast crisis would be an absolutely uh, foreign thing to the farmers of the past who made absolutely everything themselves. Um, so they the the tradition died out in a lot of places, and where it stayed alive was kind of typically places where that uh, it wasn't so easy to transport commercial beer to, uh, and but eventually, uh, it got late enough, like 1970s, 80s, 90s, that people started seeing uh, the brewing as, you know, something valuable in and of itself, not just for the beer, but, but as, a, as a valuable tradition on the level with folk music and stuff like that. The trouble is that it was mainly the brewers themselves who thought like that, and a few far-seeing people. So... Uh, the beer, you know, got compared with mainstream lager and then later with uh, with uh, craft beer and it wasn't very fashionable. So kind of my... I mean, a large part of the reason for writing the book and then going to the US to promote it was that um, I wanted the, the people in Western Norway and Lithuania to, to start appreciating their own tradition by making them see the people in America think this is fascinating. And if Americans think this is great, then maybe you should think it's great too. That's great. We're going to wrap up. John, so, you know, when I took your class at Bitter and Esther's, the first thing you talk about is sanitizing and cleaning. Um, how, how would you, would you ever have a class where people sit around a pot and wait for it to boil and, you know, pitch a, a, a traditional yeast like this? <laughs> I will now. <laughs> you think you think you'll do it? <laughs> you know, the funny thing is something that Lars uh, hit upon was, you know, yeast crisis. There's no yeast crisis. There's yeast everywhere. There's yeast on our skin. There's yeast anywhere. So if people want to make bread, all they have to do is make a starter. There's yeast out there that they can ferment with, right? You know, same with beer. It's, but um, we just use these yeasts that are that have been uh, cultivated through time, and and uh, we have pure cultures of it. But otherwise, yeah, yeast will outlive this uh, our species. That's for sure. 
<laughs> and John, tell us, so right now your shop is open for what? We are open every day, actually, 12 to 6, but just for online sales. Uh, and then we have UPS shipping and we have uh, curbside pickup. The cool thing uh, during this crisis, if, you, if there's anything that's cool, is that people have been going back to making their own stuff. Uh, you hear about people baking like crazy, but a lot of people are brewing. Uh, both people have already brewed and also uh, a lot of new brewers. So people are kind of going back to the way things were that they have to rely on their own uh their own self on their own baking and that's that's kind of cool I, I like that but it's kept us busy and that's great so when when lars's book comes out you'll you'll have it for sale at your yes shop? i will oh yeah absolutely i can't wait to get it yeah so when, when you're listening to the show it'll hopefully be the end of april or beginning of may 2020 and you'll be able to i would say go check out bitter and esther's order the book, uh, Historical Brewing Techniques. And Pete, anything else you want to say about uh, Kvike or traditions? Um, I'll talk about yeast shortage. <laughs> there might not be a yeast shortage, but there seems to be a flour shortage right now. Um, we can't seem to get our hands on any. Um, if, you're, if you are trying to make some bread or something, like John's talking about, it, yeast is everywhere, but if you want a Saccharomyces strain, just take some fruit, stick it in your starter there. Uh, that's where that's where these yeasts come from. Saccharomyces sugar mold. They grow on the skin of fruit. Give me a quick recipe for that, Pete. Raisins. Just chuck some raisins in your. Get some flour and and everything else you need for the bread, and throw some raisins in there. You'll get a you'll get a starter going. That's great, man. Yeah, and flour. I read about it too. It's it's actually the on the retail level, the five pound and smaller packages are, are most people don't really bake in America. So only four percent of all flour in America is geared towards home home bakers at retail. Most of it's most of it's in fifty pound bags and larger for commercial bakeries. So that's another thing that has to get switched around. But we've learned so much from this last month. It kinda sucks. I'll say it again, COVID sucks. But I'm glad we got to take the time to, to talk remotely. I mean thanks to everyone, Matt the engineer and Matt Patterson the engineer, Dylan Hoyer, our producer and Heritage Radio Network for keeping the show going. I mean, I'm in the East Village. Um, Pete, you're in Brooklyn, right? And yep, Greenpoint. And John's in B- Brooklyn. And Lars, of course, is in uh, Norway. But we're on a remote podcast, and you and you'll be hearing that soon. Um, so thanks everyone for joining. One more time, let's go around the room, and everyone, please say your name and a shout out. John. I'm John Lapola. I am owner of Bitter and Esther's Homebrew Supply Shop in Brooklyn, New York. Pete. Pete Lindjell Fushimi from KCBC. Stay safe, everyone. Lars. Lars Marius Gorsson from Rælingen, Norway. I'm the author of Historical Brewing Techniques. Out in the, the bookshops from April 30th. Great. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our engineer, Matt Patterson, producer Dylan Hoyer. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Uh, be safe, and we'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! <laughs> Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simple Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio is supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.